0: This is Remembering Yugoslavia, the show exploring the memory of a country that no longer exists. I'm your guide, Peter Korchnak, back from my travels around the region, energized, inspired, and ready to pick things up where I left off. So the podcast is back from a break too, with an exciting lineup of conversations, stories, and deep dives. All Yugoslavia, all the time. This was my first trip to the former Yugoslavia since the pandemic, basically in more than two years, and that's quite a big deal for me personally and for the project. An even bigger deal was your generosity. Thank you new Patreon supporters Ashley, Kristen and Jelena Drvar, Elizabeth, Philip C., Philip D., Ivana, Maya, Mark, Muammer, Nina, and others, as well as Dusan and Igor, who went the PayPal route, for all your generous contributions. If you wish to join these and many other good people on this journey through Yugoslavia's memory, visit rememberingyugoslavia.com donate and get started there. In a way, this episode of Remembering Yugoslavia has been nearly 30 years in the making. I've been reading my guest's work since I was in high school, in the 1990s Czechoslovakia and then Slovakia. As I was discovering Slovak and Czech and Hungarian and Polish intellectuals to get my own bearings on the post-communist world, I came across a Yugoslav one. She had traveled around Central and Eastern Europe, including my country, and captured her experiences in a book of essays whose title hooked me immediately. How We Survived Communism and Even Laughed. Moreover, the we in the title was mostly women. It was quite rare then to read a book both by a female author and about the women of the region. Needless to say, the book was my first exposure to Yugoslav feminism. Born in 1949 in Rijeka, Slavenka Draculic graduated from the University of Zagreb the year I was born, in 1976. She wrote on feminist issues for mainstream Croatian-slash-Yugoslav-weeklies Danas and Start and broke through internationally in 1991 with How We Survived Communism and Even laughed. That same year, Draculic left the newly independent Croatia for safety reasons. In the ensuing three decades, she wrote seven more books of nonfiction, five novels and countless articles for European and American publications, from Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung to The Guardian and from The Nation to The New York Times. Her latest, published last year, is Café Europa Revisited, How to Survive Post-Communism, a quarter-century later sequel to the 1996 volume Café Europa, Life After Communism. A journalist, Drakulich, continues to write and publish and tour and comment on the world as only an intellectual can. She now divides her time between Sweden and Croatia, though, as you'll hear, she considers herself a European. This was a cross-old-country conversation. I was in Belgrade, while Draculic spoke with me from her summer home in a tiny village in Istria. We experienced some technical difficulties during the remote call, and so I've filled in the blanks wherever necessary. People are finding many parallels between the war in Ukraine, and not just that, but also the rise of populism and nationalism in Europe around the world, the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol and other current and recent events, and what happened in the former Yugoslavia in the 80s and the 90s. And so, in many ways, it almost feels like it's history repeating. So how do you feel about that, and what does it say about us as as humans and our ability or maybe inability to learn our lessons?
1: <laughs> That's really a big question, but as it yes. teaches us as humans, but I would leave that question out completely. I mean, if we are talking about uh, Ukraine and this recent uh, recent war as of uh, February twenty-fourth, of course people are asking why and how and are there any parallels and so on. Um, many people think this is the first war I- in Europe after the second World war, which, of course, not, is not true. One of the similarities on, on the level of politics is going into another country with occupying another territory with justification, with saying, I am going to save somebody. I am going to save Ukrainians from the Nazi government, and we are going to ha- save Serbs from Croatia because they are suffering there under also nationalist government. Or we are going to save uh, Serbs in Kosovo because Kosovars have been attacking them. I will only mention here Martinovich case. People from my generation will remember that. This is how it pretty much uh, started there. In May
0: 1985, a man named George Martinovich sought medical help in Jilan Kosovo with a broken beer bottle stuck in his rectum. He claimed that he, a Serb, had been attacked by two Albanians, which is what the media reported, and nationalists picked up on as proof of Serbs being oppressed and persecuted in the province, which was the opposite of the truth. It later turned out the injury was self-inflicted, resulting from an accident during a, let's say, private moment out in the field. But by then, the damage had spread beyond Martinovic's tenders.
1: So uh, this tactic is very similar. We are going there, we are going to save people, And this is, of course, a matter of uh, a big, big propaganda machine saying these kind of things, because what I saw in my experience is that you have to justify your moves. You have to tell people that they can go there and that they are allowed to save people even if it requires killing. This cannot be without propaganda and without uh, justification, this is one element. The other element is, uh, now it looks, but I don't think it's true, as if former Yugoslavia with its wars uh, was exporting nationalism. Um, that, that certainly is not true, but it's also true that nationalist um, events happen later on, but we can also think about Basques. We don't necessarily have to think about uh, Ukraine or Bosnia, for that matter. So there are, in Europe, uh, uh, nationalist movement uh, demands uh, and so on. And it has, in my opinion, another root, another uh, background, I would say, so I wouldn't mix uh, uh, a desire of people in former Yugoslavia to have their own uh, independent states when Yugoslavia was already very evident falling apart. With this, because nationalism, I think, after 1989, which is after the collapse of communism, it's I think a sign of something else. It's a sign of people feeling insecure in the in the new world, if I may say so. But then, on the other hand, there are many things that are very different between this war and the previous war nineteen ninety 1990, wars, 1991-1995, and the difference is the whole political context, because for many years, uh, at the beginning of the war, the West, the uh, Western powers, they looked upon what was happening in Yugoslavia like a small fire in a the backyard, uh, there is some smoke, there are some victims, nothing big, we can solve it. Well, anyway, they're used to killing each other, so, I mean, it's uh, their tradition for a thousand years. I even remember, you know, people writing, a oh, thousand years old uh, confrontation. So I think uh, not much attention was paid, plus that the big powers were divided very much uh, about how to approach it, what to do for example for many years bosnia was not allowed to import the arms which of course uh, their defense was uh, in that uh, sense was desperate because they had nothing to to fight with but for ukraine it's entirely different ball game it's really something completely different of course first of all because ukraine is big but there is russia here involved and russia is one of the very big and dangerous, uh, apparently, world powers. And on that level, it cannot be paralleled because the whole world is, not only Europe, but the whole world is trembling. But then again, there is another, which goes back to your question about human nature, another element which is uh, uh, very similar. I personally think that uh, wars are all the same in that sense, because human being is as it is. And it means it's capable of doing both good and evil, to use these religious terms because nobody came with anything better. And uh, if you take this uh, killing of civilians in Bucha, for example, I got a question from Ukrainian journalist saying, oh, but how is it possible that in 21st century we have uh, war crimes uh, like this? Why not? Why not? Have we been so civilized, so good? Have we learned and improved? Well, we have learned and improved in one sense, and this is that democratic countries are not uh, going to war against each other. But uh, on the other hand, uh, human nature is such, and this I learned through this book, uh, writing this book, They Will Never Hurt a Fly on trials of war criminals
0: in The Hague. In They Would Never Heard a Fly, a 2004 book of nonfiction, fiction discusses the men in The Hague standing accused or in most cases convicted of serious crimes in the wars of Yugoslavia's dissolution. She explores how and why nationalism emerged and destroyed Yugoslavia, how and why the war started, and how and why these individuals did what they did while becoming heroes
1: in their home countries. Yes, they're capable of of both things. Yes, it's possible, it's happening, and it's always for us very hard to face it as human beings because we believe, I think essentially we are all uh, believing that we can learn, that we can progress, that we can do something about it. And, uh, you know, people are nervously saying, saying, what can we do? I think that we are all children of enlightenment, which was the greatest movement in history of humankind ever. Because we think that by learning, by going to school, by education, by all of that, we are going somehow to improve ourselves. Perhaps we do, but this improvement is so very slow that um, I am I am more on the pessimist side.
0: You mentioned the um, insecurity in the in the world, you know, and, and nationalism, populism being one of the responses or one of the reactions to it. The other is in the former Yugoslav space or maybe even all of Central Eastern Europe is uh, nostalgia for the times when there was peace, when there was jobs, when there was security, etc. And so what's your take on this whole phenomenon of uh, nostalgia, as it's uh, sometimes called?
1: I don't believe there is such a thing, not uh, nostalgia generally in Eastern Europe or nostalgia, Hugo uh, nostalgia. I would like to make a difference here between the nostalgia for the political system and nostalgia for your youth, for the that times past, which were better in the sense, as you mentioned, we had jobs, we had some kind of security. For example, my generation, I was born in 1949. So, my generation and maybe younger people who were born in the 50s or even 60s—they remember something, so they could feel nostalgia. But it is not political nostalgia. For that, I am uh, very sure. And uh, also, there are some uh, researches that confirm that, for example, in in Germany, they did—I think uh, perhaps after. I don't know, 20th anniversary of uh, uh, unification, a big uh, research about nostalgia, and they did establish that there is nostalgia, but also not of the kind that uh, we would like to attribute to such a country, that is, to the political regime. I don't think that people are, they might be, and this is interesting, they might be inclining more to authoritarian uh, regime as such. But not to the political structure as it was, uh, as it was called communism, but actually called it socialism. Because there was uh, recently done a big research all over the world, and I'm quoting it in this, my latest book, uh, uh, Cafe Europa Revisited, that what countries are more prone to support democracy or autocratic regime? Now, Eastern European countries, they all come on the top. Uh, Why is it so? Uh, I would not say this is because of nostalgia, but this is simply because they are used to it. Still many people are used to it, still many people remember it. And my problem, and this is what I tried to explain in that book, is that um, if you have a regime uh, like communism collapsing in 1989, it could only be political collapse, but many things cannot change overnight. And especially what cannot change in such a short time, I mean 30 years in history is not such a big time, is um uh, what I call mentality of people, the, the way people think, the pe- the way people see the world, interpret it, the, the traditions they have, the habits they have. So perhaps this is why they are supporting totalitarian regimes, because they are there. I mean, what else could they, where where would any knowledge, any appreciation of democracy for them come from? Even now, I can tell you that the way democracy works in Eastern Europe, I do not generalize because uh, it works differently in different countries, but the way uh, democracy works, let's say in Hungary, uh, you you really cannot trust that regime. They call it empty democracy. Some uh, some people who are writing about democracy, call it uh, it's an empty form. But the the way people behave, leaders, political um, parties, and so on, it is still in an authoritarian way. And also, the most I would say important uh, novelty. That came after 1989. Corruption became overpowering everything else, and it's like some kind of a of a cancer. Yes, of course. Before, within within the communist regime, there was also corruption in the sense that if you were not a member of the certain party, that is the communist party, you couldn't achieve any big uh, career. But excuse me, it is exactly the same now. So. We should be thinking about this, I think. Do Mm -hmm. we really think that that when in 1989 uh, such a system collapsed, that everything will change overnight? Of Mm -hmm. course not. Of
0: course not, yes. So speaking of the book uh, Café Europa visited. let's go back to Ukraine one more time in, uh, in the 60s. So you build a chapter or the, the, an essay that's that's in the book about Ukraine on the photograph of the sulky girl at a 1968 May Day celebration in Lviv, Soviet Union. If you were to pick one such image uh, for the former Yugoslavia from the socialist era, what would it be and what would it say or what would you say about uh, about it, about what it says?
1: Well, I no, I wouldn't pick uh, one single image, but I uh, it makes me remember what happened. How did we celebrate it May first? How we as children were actually taken with the school, with our teacher, out in the streets to wave with the little paper flags and to celebrate it, not really knowing what we are celebrating, uh, uh, 29th of. uh, of the November, the Republic Day, Tito's birthday, especially it brings back all these uh, routines that that we lead through as a, as a children. What is the point of that, um, essay in the book is, um, that the comments on the social media discussing this little girl look, they were mostly talking about how, you know, it's 68, so how shabby she looks um, or how, how strange she looks, uh, but what they do not see, that behind her in the background there are these uh, buildings in Lviv where they hang out these banners with the photos of the leaders of the time and all these um, slogans, I don't know, long live Soviet Republic or long live Brezhnev or whoever was then the leader and, or a local leader maybe. And did not comment upon that. And this was like a kind of, almost like a being blind on purpose. And, uh, Oksana Zabushko, perhaps one of the best known writers in Ukraine, she wrote a comment on that, an essay, which inspired me a lot because, uh, she's saying, I mean, what kind of people, uh, we are when we do not talk to our kids about the past. And this is the phenomena not only there. I was uh, in uh, Czech Republic and uh, in Prague and I was talking to some people and they also warned me. They said they made a big um, research among the uh, students who are finishing gymnasium and asking them what do they know about communism. Now it turned out that these kids, 18 year old kids, which is perhaps uh, um in the year, let's see, it's about year 2000 they were still born then, they have learned from their parents nothing, why? Because the parents do not want to go back, they are happy to get rid of it, so it's really speaking in, against nostalgia, this is the first thing, and the second is they do not want to remember that they, most probably, because um, the party has a huge number of, mem- of members, Communist Party, that they were member of the party. So then they decide to shut up, not to talk about it, which perhaps is then the source of the anxiety and of not understanding what is then happening today. If you don't speak about your past, if you are ignorant about your past, it goes for everybody, of course, then it means that it is much easier to manipulate with you as a citizen. Which then means that, for example, Putin's propaganda, it's much more efficient or Milosevic propaganda or Tujman propaganda. Every propaganda is much more efficient if it's dealing with half truths or official truths. And if you add a little bit of myth into that and lie, of course, we have to lie. I mean, every propaganda lies. Then you get some kind of a picture that you can sell to the public, to the people, to the army, to your citizens. And that, I think, is dangerous. Here I like to quote always uh, Timothy Snyder, uh, American historian, who says uh, history without memory is impossible, but memory without history is dangerous. And this is what is happening there, because the kids have uh, some kind of memory or half-memory But not history. And then they are lost because they know they say, Why is this happening? What is this happening? How is it possible? So knowledge of the history is one, in my opinion, one of the very big problems in the former the communist countries, and it's the source of many problems. Why? Because what I learned at school was not history; it was official history. It means history controlled by the communist party. I can give you example of Jasenovac, which is perhaps the best example. When we when I started school, the the, the, the we learned some almost impossible numbers of people killed in astronauts which is a concentration. Uh, camp in the independent state of Croatia, which was a Nazi puppet state between 41 and 45. So, we were learning the numbers of, I don't know, 700,000 or, I mean, basically, at the end, all researchers came down to the number very recently, a couple, I don't know, decades somewhere around 70, maybe 100,000, but let's say 70,000 people killed with names and surnames and everything. And uh, I, going to school, never learned about the other side of that Yassenoth, and this is Bleiburg. This is where also some 100,000 people were executed by the TITOS army without any kind of uh, process or anything. They were withdrawing from Croatia, they were defeated, there were many soldiers, but also many civilians. These people were killed uh, in Austria in Bleyburg. So this is what happens to you when you don't know the history. Anybody can pull out, you know, certain images, certain, um, we used to call it pulling the bones and playing with the bones, how many dead were killed. Yes, there is a huge number of Serbs killed in the astronaut. And therefore, if you don't know exactly how many servers were killed, you can say 200,000 and perhaps it's 20, then you can use it as an argument of propaganda. So I think the relation to the past, not only in Croatia or in Slovakia for that matter, or in Ukraine now also, half-truths combined with meat and lie is making very efficient propaganda.
0: The cover of the American edition of Café Europa Revisited by Penguin features a photograph of another school-aged girl taken at something like a wedding. Dressed up and big-tailed, she is propping up her cheek with her elbow resting on a dining table amidst an assortment of glasses, staring straight at the camera at the viewer. She looks very bored, borderline annoyed even, as only a child can be at an event like that. Behind her, an old man in a suit is taking a bite of food with a fork. With but a little bit of imagination, this sulky girl could represent Central Eastern European people's attitudes towards post-communist capitalism and democracy, back-turned, annoyed, while the fat cat's feed in the background. I'm talking to you from Belgrade, and the city's really quite covered in graffiti, stencils, uh, glorifying Ratko Mladic, Ratko Heroe, etc. And of course, there's that mural where it kind of all started. In, in Croatia, you know, you have posters of uh, Ante Gotovina around the place, around the country, in Croatia, Dalmatia especially. Every city has a Vukovar memorial. These are becoming commemoration sites, I'm told. Uh There's a lot of flag waving. So how does that play into what you were talking about what's your take on on this uh, let's say looking back at the history glorifying certain parts or telling certain versions on the ground level often and then uh, how does it relate to the official approvals or 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 consent or at least not erasure
1: that's that's really the key in the sense that um i think it's actually a question of reconciliation you know how can we really reconciliate... uh with these flags waving and all this graffiti around. We cannot. It's very difficult. But I think the tacit uh, approval of every government is the key there. The governments in former Yugoslav republics, um, they like to have it on the can I say it on backburn or low burn. Uh, this kind of nationalism, because they can always, in some crisis, they can point out to the other side that, look what they're doing, actually they're doing the same thing. This is what I mean by not resolving your past. In Croatia, you can really see that uh, Croatian fascism 1941-45 is not dead.
0: One of the ways this survival of fascism in Croatia manifests is the use by right-wingers of the old Ustaša greeting Zadom spremni, meaning roughly for the homeland at the ready, which Draculic considers as the Croatian equivalent of Hal Hitler and which is actually banned in the country. The problem, according to Drakulich, is that the rest of society pretends this does not happen,
1: that the problem does not exist. But what exists in this society is tolerance. It's tolerance to the things that should not be tolerated, because it is nothing to be proud of. However, Tuchman is partly responsible for that, because if you would ask him as a no-partisan, he probably would like somehow to to skip that part of these five years, if he could somehow bridge them, and jump over them. But he couldn't, he couldn't just skip it. The chief reason
0: for this, according to Draculic, was the influence of the Croatian diaspora, many of whom returned to their homeland in the 90s, along with wads of money they used to finance Tujman's party as well as the war effort.
1: So he, what we used to say, and it's actually an expression for Feral Tribune from Split.
0: Feral Tribune was a weekly satirical magazine between 1993 and 2008, notorious for its criticism of the government and especially of Franjo Tudjman, who...
1: Tried to mix the bones, you know, and um, somehow reconciliate partisan and uh, ustase children uh, in a symbolic sense, actually building a proper... uh, a proper monument to that. Of course, this wasn't done. But this mixing of bones, uh, it's actually going on because this kind of underlying uh, tendencies to revive that part of history still exists. Although when you look into elections, into you look into researches, there is perhaps uh, no more than 15% right-wingers who, you know, stand behind that. But it is that our government does not have... Uh, Guts doesn't have uh, enough distance to that. So it's uh, it's uh, not uh, very easy to reconcile, it's not easy to speak about or to agree about uh, minimum truth from the past. We did not uh, resolve, as you can see, Second World War, we didn't resolve what happened in Ende uh, during 41-45. State and didn't even come to speak openly and sincerely and persecute the work, our own, each country its own work, criminals. It's all going uh, too slow, and the reasons are always, always, always put in calculation.
0: In the guided tour through the Museum of Communism, you tell the story of Yugoslavia through the uh, eyes and the beak of Koki the parrot uh, that Tito gave to his granddaughter as a gift. And so you you know you touch upon all the, you know, a lot of things that we've already talked about, but I want to ask kind of on a personal level, and this might be again one of those big uh, maybe general questions, but what does Yugoslavia mean to you personally? Uh,
1: first of all, let me just mention a few words about this book, because okay. this book, um, for me, it's very, it's very important. Many times I have seen in my experience that people in the West and especially in the United States see, when you say communism or communist countries, they see them really as a block. They they think everything is everywhere the same. And my aim, my, let's say, a little aim or modest aim in that book was to show that they are different, that Albania is different from Bulgaria, that Czech Republic is uh, different from Poland. So I took one animal to represent country and tell the story of that country and it's in my view it's um, in a way funny funny book because it shows these differences coming from the mouth of um, animals
0: it really is an entertaining little book with a great gimmick a mouse living at the prague museum of communism tells czechoslovakia's story underscoring that quote life under communism should not be forgotten a circus bear named after todor zivkov tells bulgaria's story a dog tells romania's tale through a history of strays a raven Albania's. Tito's parrot Koki tells Yugoslavia's story, commenting on a man's love of fancy outfits and uniforms, of beautiful women, and of simple food.
1: Personally, my father was an army officer. He, he was fighting in the Second World War with Tito. We are from the seaside, so he was uh, fighting in this brigade that was fighting in Rieka. They were both working, my parents. We had, um, I would say, uh, what was considered middle-class... Uh, a standard. When I went to school, I didn't have a clue who is a Serb, who is a Croat. didn't have. A, it wasn't the topic then. And uh, the memories are fond because it is my childhood.
0: Here, Draculic referenced George Arwa's distinction between nationalism and patriotism that he made in his 1945 essay "Notes on Nationalism."
1: Patriotism is more private. It, it, it sounds strange, but it is more private in the sense of remembrance of your childhood with some food, landscapes or smells, and nationalism, in his interpretation, but also mine, is it requires enemy, uh, because nationalism is saying, my nation is better than yours. And uh, it is, um, let's say, more aggressive than patriotism. i more, really feel like a European person, but I never uh, forget where I'm from. It's my language, it's my tool because I also write uh, in Croatian, although there was a period when I was writing mostly in English because it wasn't possible to publish anything in my own language. However, not nostalgic for the system, uh, not even nostalgic in any sense. It was uh, quite a good life, but of course I'm speaking only about uh, middle-class people who could travel, who could go to Trieste to buy blue jeans, who could go to Graz, who could travel to London to buy records, and so on and so on. So, of course, I was, from that point of view, privileged.
0: As a writer myself and, um, you know, someone who actually read your books way back in the 90s and was just kind of following, have been following your your intellectual, your public and publishing journey, I'm, I'm curious, uh, where do you draw the motivation and the, the inspiration and the energy for
1: all this work? I don't have any special source of energy, it's just <laughs> what I like to do. I started as a journalist and I still am a journalist. I never stopped being journalist. I like to write reportage, comments, uh, analysis. I mixed all of that. I think my, my books, uh, it's in English called Essay, but it's actually a mixture of, of all of this. And even mixture of fiction and non-fiction. I also write fiction. I am very curious and interested in, in the uh, certain topics, uh, Eastern Europe is something. But, you know, on the other hand, when you think about that, uh, communist system collapsed. you have to write about that. There is a war, you have to write about that. I mean, things are happening. I think it's just curiosity and, and I cannot see myself uh, doing anything else but what I'm doing.
0: I cannot see myself doing anything else but what I'm doing. That's as aspirational for me as it gets. And honestly, it's the point where I find myself with this podcast and the Remembering Yugoslavia project overall. To be continued. I could have talked with Slavenka Draculic for hours. I had many more questions for her. About her having survived COVID and the anti-vax conspiracy theories. About feminism and the status and situation of women in the region today. Plenty more about nationalism and Yugoslavia and, and, and... But the line was bad and the time limited and more writing to be done. Speaking of writing, when draculich said she has to write about all the things she writes about, the Twitter experts came to mind, you know, the people who are experts on every single event or crisis that happens. Republika Srpska's secession, the Afghanistan withdrawal, the German election, the trans issues, the war in Ukraine, the school shootings, the primaries. The difference I see here is that Draculich sticks to her themes, to what she knows. A recent piece she has out in Utarny List, for example, deals with the first conviction of a Russian soldier of war crimes in Ukraine, going back to the question of how he, a regular guy, could do such awful things, and using examples from the Yugoslav wars for comparison. I recommend you follow Draculich on Facebook, where she posts all of her writings, lectures, interviews, and more. And buy her books, starting with the latest, Cafe Europa Revisited. I've included the links in the blog post of this episode at RememberingYugoslavia.com Next on Remembering Yugoslavia But it's not about the money. The thing that people don't understand is the commitment you have to put into this car. It's literally like you're adopting a child. Zastava 750, commonly known as Fico or Fica or Ficco, was socialist Yugoslavia's first car. Over time, it took on a life of its own, both acquiring a cult status and becoming a nostalgic symbol for that disappeared country. On the next episode of Remembering Yugoslavia, Fico goes back to the future. Tune in wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe to make sure you don't miss out. that's all for this episode of remembering yugoslavia thank you for listening find additional information links in the transcript of this episode at remembering yugoslavia.com and if you wish to support the show and mean making it please consider making a donation go to remembering yugoslavia.com donate and choose from one of the options there to get started i thank you and yugoslavia's memory thanks you outro music courtesy of robert petrich additional music by Ketsa and petar argic licensed under creative Commons. i am petar Korchniak. ciao